0: Hey guys, Pastor David here. Uh, welcome to Victory Church. We're excited that you have uh, found us, that you're joining us today. We're a community of authentic Spirit-led Christ followers transformed to walk in victory. That is our vision here at Victory Church, and that is what we're praying will become a reality for us as a church here at Victory. So I'm glad that you guys found us. I'm glad that you're joining us today, and we're excited about kicking off this sermon here in just a moment. All right, so so who in here, I got a question for you. Who in here? Um, like surprises. Does anybody like to get, you can raise your hand if you want. I mean, this is a free house. You can, you can raise your hand. You can get loud if you want. It's okay. I think, I think all, there you go. I think all of us like surprises at some point in our life, right? I mean, I don't know if there's anybody out there that doesn't like to ever get a surprise. But some people, some people like, you know, not to mention any names like my wife, um, you know, love surprises. I'm not talking about a little bit. I'm talking about absolutely loves surprises. Like that is one of her main Uh, Love languages is like gifts, you know, that that kind of gifts and and, uh, surprises, things like that. And and I'm not talking about like materialistic type things like, you know, bling, diamonds, whatever you want to call it, which is good because I'm not rich, you know, so (laughs) that's a good thing. Praise God. Um, But, you know, I'm talking about like the little love notes, the roses, the flowers, you know, just spontaneous little surprise gifts. That's what she loves, that's her love language. And uh, I'm convinced that God has a sense of humor for several reasons. One of those reasons is, man, I am horrible at giving gifts and, like, surprises. I am horrible at that. Like, I mean, I don't know. It's just the way that I'm wired, I guess, the way that my mind thinks. Like, I look I, like at things. I try to look at things logically, like, objectively. I kind of see a pattern, um, you know, and, and you know, it's not that I don't like spontaneity, but even in my spontaneity, I can think, like, I, I can see where I'm looking for the practicality in things. I just aim, and my wife is the complete opposite when it comes to that. She loves spontaneity with absolutely, it doesn't have to have logic with it. It's just spontaneous. Just in the moment, she loves that kind of stuff, and and so that's one of the reasons that she loves getting surprise gifts from this not so spontaneous guy, which is interesting. So pl- please pray for me. I'm serious. Pray for me right now. Um, so because of that, when when Brittany and I were dating, I decided that I wanted to go. I wanted to do something. Like big. I wanted to surprise her. And I'm talking about like some little surprise, man. I'm talking about a huge surprise. Like I wanted it to be like the surprise that just like trumps all other surprises, right? So I came up with this plan. I actually found out that um, one of Brittany's best friends, Laurel, and Brittany, were gonna go on a vacation together to Myrtle Beach. They were gonna go to the beach together. So as soon as I found this out, we had already kind of taught Brittany and I. We already kind of knew, okay, this is what we wanted. We kind of got some counsel. We prayed about this a lot. A lot of godly people we were like, okay, yeah, this is what we feel God wants for our lives. We're going to get married. But I, 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 wanted, I didn't tell her when I was going to do it, right? I wanted to plan that out. And so as soon as I found that out, I was like, the wheels started turning, man. Okay. I'm like, all right. I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna surprise her. I'm gonna go down there to the beach. She's gonna have no clue, and I'm gonna surprise her. I came up with this plan. I talked to Laurel about it, her friend who was going to the beach with her, because I didn't wanna like ruin their vacation, but she gave me the thumbs up. She was like, oh yeah, that's gonna be awesome. That is gonna be great. I talked to one of my best friends, Spencer. He's like, dude, that's awesome. You should definitely do that. That's gonna be great. So, my plan was this was my, my elaborate plan that I thought was awesome. I was going, so, Brittany, and um, uh, Laurel were going to go down to the beach together. And then a little bit after they left, we were going to leave. Me and Spencer were going to leave. And Brittany was going to have no clue, unbeknownst to Brittany, we're going to be driving down there a little bit after so we didn't cross paths. We're going to get down there to, um, anybody ever been to Myrtle Beach at, I think it's called the Skywheel? Ever been to that? Nobody? dude, You guys need to go. It's awesome. It's this huge Ferris. I've never seen a Ferris well bigger than this thing. It's awesome. You've been? It's awesome, right? Oh man, yeah, it's it's awesome, dude. It is it's giant, and what's really cool is it overlooks the ocean. Right, it's right there. I mean, literally, like here's the sand. It's right back from it, and it's huge. It's beautiful. You've never been? Go there. Really cool, right by the boardwalk and Myrtle Beach. So I was gonna go there, right uh, below the Ferris wheel. It kind of lights it up a little bit when it was kind of in the evening time, but not too late. And I was gonna write in the sand, "Will you marry me?" Right, and we're gonna meet up at this time. Great, right? I mean, come on, pat on the back. Like that was gonna be awesome. I was thinking, dude, this is going to be like an epic surprise. People are going to come up to me and be like, dude, can you give me some ideas for some surprises or like a proposal or something? That's what I'm thinking in my head, right? Yeah, but we all know that um, the way we plan things out doesn't always go as planned, right? Like the, the journey that we kind of envision in our mind and the destination, it doesn't always happen that way. And that's what happened in this scenario, in this situation. Like, it not only did not go as planned, it like went horribly wrong in a lot of ways. I mean, except for the main thing, which is good. Something went right. Um, but no, so what happened, uh, Spencer and I, um, we left a little bit after uh, Brittany and Laurel, like we were going we were planning to. And uh, w- when we left, we, we, we ran into all these different issues. I can't remember exactly what happened. I think we ran into a lot of traffic. There was a couple little other little bumps in the road, and we got there so much later than planned. Like not just a little bit, like it was dark pretty much by the time we got there. And I'm already thinking, dude, she's not going to be able to see this, right? So luckily we get there, it's at the boardwalk, so there's a lot of lights kind of illuminating, you know, the sand a little bit. And, you know, the lights from the Ferris wheel, so I'm thinking, okay, well, all right, hey, praise God, that's awesome. You know, God's going to make this happen, right, in spite of myself. And so we get out there, I'm like, okay, we get out to the sand, We're the only ones out there in the sand at this point, and we're trying to carve in the sand, will you marry me? And and this sand like hates me. This sand has like got a personal vendetta against me or something. Because I am continuing to carve these letters out, and it's continuing to like roll back on and itself. I'm like, you can't even read it. We and on top of that, like we're out there, and again, we're the only ones out there, so there's a little bit of light. You can see these two like the idiotic looking guys running back and forth awkwardly, like what in the world are these guys doing? So I'm kind of internally freaking out a little bit. I'm like, oh my goodness, I hope she doesn't like, look out here. Because you know, all she has to do is look out here. She's going to be like, oh yeah, that's my goofy looking boyfriend down there. You know, what's he doing? You know? So I'm kind of like, internally freaking out. And every once in a while, I'll run back over here, kind of get some cover, make sure she can't see me, look up, make sure you no, know, you know, she's not out there. Then I'd run back out you know, start carving. I'm looking awkward. I'm feeling awkward. This is just not going as planned. And then to top all that off, when we're, we're supposed to meet right? This this moment we're all supposed to meet. I'm going and I think I was like hiding behind some bushes and stuff like this. And dude, she sees me. And I'm not talking about she sees me a few feet away. She sees me when she is like way over there. And I just look like an idiot hiding behind like these bushes. She's laughing at me. Come on, man. She started laughing at me. And I'm thinking, man, this is horrible. This, whole, this awesome plan that I envisioned for, I mean, this was like a couple months I didn't, I, I'd come up with this plan. And, and then she gets up there, if that's not bad enough, dude, when she gets up to the sand, she can't even read. it She can't even read. it I had to tell her what I wrote in the sand. Like, this is ridiculous. So then after all that, and it doesn't end, it doesn't end there, okay, there's something else. So we get to this restaurant after all that, you know, with our friends And then she proceeds to tell me that, you know, I kind of had this feeling, you know, for a while now that you were probably going to propose to me because we've been talking about this. I thought that that was probably going to be something you would do. So I actually already had it set in my mind that you were going to come down this weekend and propose to me. Like, she already knew. I'm like, (laughs) are you kidding me? Like, this elaborate epic plan, I thought it was epic. And I'm thinking, dude, all I can think at at that point in time is like, dude, epic fail on my part, right? epic felt like I mean the the best thing the good thing out of all this the only good thing is the fact that she said yes right praise God so because of that yes thank you thank you Brittany yes (laughs) Uh, but oh my goodness if she had said no I don't know what I would have done man I mean like honestly I may have never tried to surprise anybody for the rest of my life as long as I live like it was it was oh man it was crazy but I learned a lot along the journey all right thankfully I learned a lot along the journey. For one, I learned that if you were going to come up with this big, elaborate surprise uh, for somebody, it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to really plan all that stuff out. Like, you can't just kind of plan something out halfway and then expect it all to fall through. Like, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to plan this out. The other thing that I learned along this journey is, is the fact that, I man, you might want to double-check all those little details rather than just assuming they're all going to go according to plan. Like, for example, writing something in the sand that obviously hates you and has this personal vendetta against you, you might want to practice this out and have like a plan B because it's usually good if she can read what you wrote, like the question, will you marry me? That's usually a good thing for you to be able to read that, right? So I learned these things along the journey. And the things that I learned along the journey, they prepared me, for the destination. And my destination at that point in time was to marry a woman that absolutely loves surprises. And y'all, I'm just going to tell you, she still loves surprises, and I still struggle with giving surprises, so please pray for me. I'm being honest, just pray for me with this. But guys, something else, even more importantly, is the fact that if I had never taken the journey, then I would have never arrived at my destination in the first place. If I had never taken the journey, then I would have never arrived at my destination in the first place. And that's true for all of us. Guys, we have to be willing to go on a journey if we're ever going to reach our destination. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to this gospel message, this good news message, the central theme, the focus of all this, the, the point, the destination that this message ultimately leads us to is the cross. But before we get to the cross, we first have to go on a journey with Jesus. In order to get to the cross, we first have to go on a journey with Jesus. The big idea today is the gospel is about a savior's journey. The gospel is about a savior's journey. And guys, there's so much that we can learn through the life of Jesus, through the journey of Jesus. We're gonna be diving into the last moments of Jesus's life, the last moments of his life that, and ultimately what we have to remember as we're diving into this, is that every single journey leads to a destination. And with Jesus's journey, that destination is the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, first and foremost, for what you've done for us, sending your son, Jesus Christ, and the journey that he took for us. And that wasn't for you. You didn't need to do that. You don't need us. God, That you, you did that for us. You came to earth in the form of the man, Jesus, for us. You lived this life, went through all this, these trials, these persecutions, temptations that we face for us. And God, I pray that you just, you help us to understand that, the gravity of that, what you've done for us. God, I pray that as we take this journey today and dive into these texts, that these become more than just words on a page, words that we talk about, that we listen to, that they become words that actually transform our lives, that you help us to live our life in light of the things that we talk about. I pray that you convict us, God, and transform us, every single one of us, not the, not just those of us that don't know you. If anybody here doesn't know you, I pray that you they're impacted by your gospel message today, that their hearts and their minds are opened by that. But for us as Christians, God, including myself, I pray that you convict, that you you draw us closer to you and you break off any chains in our lives, any chains in my lives, God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you just flood this place, take over this sermon. I pray a special anointing over this, God. I pray all these things in your name, Jesus. We thank you, we praise you, and we love you. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to be diving into a couple different books, but the primary book that we're going to be diving into is actually one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. It is my favorite book um, when it comes to a book about the gospel. This is the gospel according to John. And yes, it's the gospel according to John, not the gospel of John. Remember, John is one of Jesus' disciples. A lot of times we'll get that confused and we'll say it's the gospel of John. But here's the thing let me tell you something. It wasn't Matthew, it wasn't Mark, it wasn't the doctor Luke, it wasn't even John that hung on that cross that died for the sins of the world, and that paved the way back to God for us. That was Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not of John. And this is John's account of the gospel. So that's what we're going to be diving into is primarily the book of John today and John's account of this gospel message, what he saw with his own eyes. There's a couple of reasons that I love this book so much. It's probably my favorite book in the entire Bible, um, the gospel of John. For one, you cannot escape this book. the the book of John without realizing the fact that, man, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. Like John spells that out for us, shows us so vividly, paints all these pictures for us all throughout his gospel. The fact that, yes, Jesus Christ was fully man, but at the same time, Jesus Christ is fully God. He is still fully man and fully God, and you cannot escape John's gospel without seeing that. Even the first chapter, even the very first chapter of John's book man it screams to us all throughout that chapter the fact that Jesus Christ is God you cannot get away from it it tells us the fact that Jesus Christ is God before it even tells us Jesus Christ's name why why is that so important for us to know why is it so important for John to make that attempt so much so to show us that Jesus Christ is God because guys if we don't understand that Jesus Christ is more than just a good man he's more than just a good teacher He's more than just some prophet. Jesus Christ is the God of the universe. If we don't understand that, then we cannot truly understand the gospel. And if we don't truly understand the gospel, then we cannot truly respond to the gospel. And without a proper response to the gospel, there is no salvation. Because salvation is only found through a proper response to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Understanding who Jesus Christ is. He is God. Understanding what he has done for us. That is where our salvation comes from. That's why this is a big deal for us to know that Jesus Christ is God. John knows this, and he writes this book that way because of that. Another reason that I love this book so much, the Gospel of John, is the fact that John was actually there. He was actually there at the feet of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, when Jesus hung on that cross, and when he died. He was actually there. None of the other gospel writers, not Matthew, not Mark, not even the Dr. Luke, None of those guys were there. None of the disciples were there. They all abandoned Jesus when it came to the cross. Every single one of them abandoned Jesus except for John. He was the only one that didn't abandon Jesus, John and his mother, Jesus' mother. John was actually there. So when John writes this book about this account of the gospel, he's writing about things that he actually saw. And not just the things of Jesus' life and his journey, but then the cross itself because John was there. As he's writing about these things, he's writing about things that he saw with his own eyes and he experienced himself. So guys, as we dive into this book today, we're going to be diving into uh, primarily the book of John, a little bit in uh, the gospel of Luke, according to Luke as well. Um, But as we dive into uh, these things, we're going to be hitting on several events that lead up to the cross. But we're not going to get to the cross this week. That's going to be next week. We're going to hit on that. But again, in order to get to the cross, we first have to take a journey Jesus. That's true in our lives here today. That's also true as we dive into the gospel message. So let's kick this off, this journey with Jesus, starting with John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. It says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that you may be made completely one. They may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where, where I am, so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, however I have known you, and they have known that you have sent me I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. As Jesus prayed this prayer, this is a prayer of Jesus, a prayer of Jesus in the upper room. Um, And this happened around the time of the first Lord's Supper, that, that first communion. That's when this prayer happened. We can learn so much in the prayers of Jesus. We can dive into those so much. There's so much depth to those. But there's one thing that I wanna hone in on in this specific prayer of Jesus. And that one thing is the unity. Did you see the unity, the intimacy in this prayer? It is just like all over the place. How many times, count how many times you see one. He wants us to be one in this one prayer. It's crazy, man. There is screams unity. Jesus Christ longs for unity both with us and for us. That is, at, that is at the heart, the core of God's longing for us. Unity for us as his body and unity with us. He longs for this. He desires this so much. Why? Why is unity so important? Why is Jesus Christ praying this prayer some of the last moments of his life talking about unity so much? Because, guys, that's what we were created for. Do you realize that we were created for this perfect relationship with God? From the beginning, unity, intimacy with God and also with each other. That's what we were created for at the very beginning of time, before sin ever entered the world. That's what we were created for. That has been God's heart, His longing for us our entire lives. As long as we have existed, mankind has existed. And that is what Jesus Christ, what God still longs for us, is unity with Him. And unity for uh, See, as Christians, we have to understand that before Christ, we found identity. We found our identity in sin. At the core of who we were, we were sinful and sin-filled people. That's who we were. That's where our identity was found, was in that sin that corrupted us. The very core of who we were. But see, what Jesus Christ wants to help us do, is he wants to help us to where we're not finding our identity in sin, but rather we're finding our identity in him. That's what Jesus Christ wants to help us do. As when we're truly follower of Christ, we've got to understand too, we're going to struggle with sin. We are going to struggle with sin in this life. And the Bible's very clear about that. Yes, one day we will no longer struggle with sins, the struggles, the chaos, the brokenness will no longer exist. But right here, right now, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we still struggle with sin. The Bible's very clear about that. But here's the difference. As Christians, that sin no longer defines us. We are no longer identified as that sin. As followers of Christ, we are identified by Christ. We are defined by Christ and by Christ alone, not by the sin that we struggle with. Let's keep on going in this journey with Jesus. In John chapter 18, verse 1, which says, After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So the, the garden that this text that John's talking about here is the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, this is the garden where uh, Judas gives Jesus that awkward kiss. It's like, dude, why are you kissing him? Uh, well, we have to understand that day and age, that was actually a, you know, just this symbol of, of affection, right? Where Jesus, or Judas is kissing Jesus. That's where the, the soldiers come up, take Jesus off. All that stuff happens in this garden. But there's something else that happens in this garden that John does not talk about. And again, this is my, probably my favorite book in the entire Bible. So I'm like, John, I wish I could talk to John and be like, dude, why did you not cover this? There's there's something that happens in that garden. It's a prayer, and it is so profound that we see so much in that prayer. I'd be like, if I could talk to John, I'd be like, dude, why did you not cover that prayer, man? That is huge. But he doesn't. All the other gospel writers do, but uh, probably the best um, uh, version of that prayer, the best um, uh, 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 idea that we can get from that prayer and what happened from that prayer is found in the gospel gospel. Of Luke, So that's what we're going to dive into, the gospel of Luke, so that we can see this prayer that's happening in this garden. Let's go to Luke chapter 22, verses 42 through 44. This is Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground, guys. In verse forty-four, when, when this when this text says that he was in anguish, what this actually means is gut wrenching pain and horror. Gut wrenching pain and horror. Jesus Christ was in gut wrenching pain and horror because of what was about to happen. And it's not because, uh, you know, the, the um, physical torture, the beatings, the, the, one of the worst deaths known to man. That is not why Jesus Christ is in horror in these moments. See, Jesus Christ is a man's man, okay? He is not in horror because of the physical uh, torment that he's going to be going through, the worst death, probably, you know, one of the worst deaths known to mankind. He is in gut-wrenching pain and horror because he knows he's about to put the weight of the world's sins on his shoulders past present and future and he is in gut-wrenching pain and horror about this and even more than that even more than that he knows that he is literally about to face me of hell he is about to face hell on that cross and hell yes it is a real place but hell the very what makes hell hell is separation from the father And that is what Jesus Christ is about to experience on the cross. He knows that. He sees that coming. And he is in gut-wrenching pain and horror as he's praying this prayer in this garden that we read about. And something else that we read in this text is the fact that Jesus Christ started sweating drops of blood in this garden. And you know, when we read that, a lot of times it's hard for us to kind of relate to that. It's hard for us to understand, okay, what is this? talking about that that seems really crazy right I mean somebody's starting to to sweat blood so it seems pretty pretty profound but I don't really have anything to relate that to I've never you know I've never experienced that I've never really known anybody else that experienced that so it can be kind of hard for us to understand what this is talking about right seems crazy but it's like what is this talking about until I heard a story about this not that long ago and the story goes like this there's a a man and his wife they were getting their kids together Um, They were gathering them up. They were at their house. I'm not sure where they were going, but they were going somewhere. They gathered their kids up. They get them all in the van. Um, Their family's ready. And all of a sudden, they realize that one of their kids, a three-year-old boy, is missing. He's missing. So they don't know where he's at. Again, they were at their house, and they're in the driveway. So they go. They look for the three-year-old boy. They can't find him. So they go to the back of the house in the backyard where they have a pool. And the pool is full of water. And to their horror, as they look in that pool, at the bottom of that pool, laid their lifeless three-year-old boy at the bottom of that pool. So the father jumps in the pool. He goes down to the bottom. Uh, He scoops his son up. He brings him to the top. They call EMS, uh, obviously, immediately. um, EMS gets there. By God's grace, this boy is saved. By God's grace, he is saved. He's taken, obviously, to the hospital. And at the hospital, man, especially if you're a parent, you can understand this. I mean, any of us can understand this. Dude, if that was my baby, man, if that was my boy, if that was my girl, dude, you'd have to pry me away from my little kid, man. You'd have to pry me away. I would be watching intently, watching just their chest rising as this little boy is laying there, just watching probably his chest rising, just praying over him, God, you know, help him, and, and you know, just, just watching him intently, making sure he's going to be okay. And as, as time goes on, he's watching his son. He's sitting there by his, his, his son's bedside, and his son's laying there. He starts to see something in his son's face. He starts to see these little bumps, these purplish bumps that are kind of erupting on his face. And you can imagine, I mean, he's kind of freaking out in this moment. I mean, what just happened to his son? He's thinking, what in the world is going on? What's going on with my son? What's what's up with his face right now? So he goes, he asks the doctor, and he's like, doc, what's going on? What's wrong with my son's face? The doctor begins to explain to him, sir, what you have to understand is when your boy was trapped, At the bottom of that pool. He was in so much horror. He was under so much pressure under the bottom of that pool. He was screaming out at the top of his lungs with everything that he had in him. Every ounce of energy. Every ounce of energy. Crying probably for his mom and his dad. Because he's scared to death. With everything that he has. So much so that the blood vessels in his face literally burst. They literally burst. In the same way guys when we read about this prayer jesus in this garden this isn't some little calm cool collective prayer all throughout the gospels we see jesus christ this calm cool collective guy in this garden when we read about this this isn't some calm cool collective prayer jesus christ is probably screaming out at the top of his lungs with every ounce of energy everything that he has in him so much so that the blood vessels in his face literally burst and blood starts pouring down his cheeks. So much so, that is our Savior. That is our Lord and Savior in this garden, screaming out, crying out to the Father. If there's any way, if there's any way we've made this plan from the beginning of time, we've made this plan, we love them, we want to save them, but there's any way, if there's any other way, Father, let's do it. Let's do it right now if there's any other way. But if there's not, not my will. Not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done. Gut-wrenching pain and horror. That's why the writer in Hebrews can tell us that we do not serve a high priest that does not understand our pains, our struggles, our heartaches. He understands these things. Jesus Christ understands temptation. He's been tempted. Jesus Christ understands these hardships in life. Why do you think, too, when we read the gospel account, why do we think? Why do you think that we don't really read anything else about the life of Joseph after the fact that Je- after Jesus Christ is a kid? Most likely, Jesus or Joseph died. Jesus experienced that as a kid. All of these things that Jesus is experiencing and some of the worst heartaches, horrors in Jesus' life occur in some of the last moments of his life. Guys, this is our Lord, our Savior. We do not serve a high priest that does not understand our struggles, our hardships, the pains, the struggles in life. He understands these things. He understands these things more than we could ever imagine. Let's keep on going with this text in Luke chapter 22, verses 45 through 46, which says, When he got up from prayer, this is Jesus, and came to the disciples, this is still in the Garden of Gethsemane, he found them sleeping, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. In the middle of Jesus' anguish, the gut-wrenching pain and horror, in the middle of what's going on when so much is at stake, all that he's asking his disciples to do, the only thing he's asking them to do is to stay awake and to pray. Stay awake and pray. He doesn't just ask them once. This happens several times. He goes and he prays that prayer we just talked about a moment ago. He prays it several times. He goes back to them and continues to find them asleep. And he continues to tell them the same thing. And he's warning them. It's not just he's telling them for his sake. He's telling it for them's sake, their sake. Like pray so you don't fall into temptation. Time and time again, Jesus is pleading with them. And he is warning with them. And what, does he do? what do they do over and over and over again? They continue to fall asleep continue to fall asleep. Guys, how often does that happen in our own lives as Christians? How often do we continue just to fall asleep? How often is we, we as Christians, as churches, continuing to fall asleep when Jesus is pleading with us, warning us to stay awake? And then we go to the God to God and we're like, God, look around look at all the chaos look what's going on in this world look at the brokenness look at the you know the the famine all these kids that are starving to death look at all these homeless guys look at all the bickering the fighting the the broken relationships god when are you going to do something wake up when are you going to do something and you know what god's response is you know what his response is i have done something i have done something i sent my son to die for you. I saved you. I gave you life. The Holy Spirit, God himself lives inside of you. I have some something. Guys, we have to wake up. We have to get up, and we have to realize the fact that we are not waiting on God to move, or God is not waiting on us to move. We are waiting on God to move. We are waiting on God to move. There's a quote. I love this quote. It's probably one of my favorite quotes. It says, it's been said that all it takes for evil to triumph It's for good men to do nothing. All it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And I love that quote, and as true as I think that is, I think that God, what God is saying to us, is all that it takes for evil to triumph is for Christians to do nothing. All that it takes for evil to triumph is for Christians to do nothing. Guys, do you realize, I mean, think of how many people are in this room. Think of how many churches are in this county. How many Christians are in this this county? Are you kidding me? If we all came together and we actually acted like the body of Christ that we are, there would be no homeless people. Are you kidding me? There would be nobody that's starving to death. Kids that go Christmases without getting any presents. That would not happen. That would not happen. We've got to wake up, guys, individually and collectively as churches. We have to wake up. We have to realize that We're not waiting on God to move. God is waiting on us to move. And just as Jesus pleaded and warned his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to wake up, he is pleading to us at Victory Church. Guys, wake up. Wake up. Let's keep on going. Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 48 in Jesus' journey. It says, while he was still speaking, speaking to the disciples, telling them to wake up, suddenly a mob came, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? So first off in this text, we can't move past this text without realizing, understanding that this Judas is one of the 12 disciples. This is one of the 12 disciples. He literally not only followed Jesus, he lived with Jesus for three years. Like all the miracles that that the text talks about when we read the gospel message, Judas was there. And so many other miracles that we don't even know about, Judas was there all of these things. Judas had a front row seat to Jesus's sermons. Are you kidding me? This guy knew Jesus. He knew him. If Judas were here today, he would be one of the best church attenders at the church. He'd be one of the best volunteers at the church. People would look at him on the outside and be like, dude, man, this guy's, this guy's got it together. He's authentic. He's genuine. But guess what? He's not. He's not. Judas straight up faked it for three years. He should have faked it for three years. And we know that not only because he betrayed Jesus, as if that's, that's not enough. We know this also because earlier on in this text, in Luke chapter 22, it actually tells us something else, that Judas actually became possessed by Satan. As Christians can't get possessed, how did he get possessed? This is telling us that Judas was never a Christian. He was never a true, authentic, genuine follower of Christ. He never truly was A genuine, authentic follower of Christ. He faked it for three years. And guys, here's the thing. There are Judases all over the place in churches. There are Judases all over the place. They know the words to say. They know the right things to do, the traditions, the Christianese, so to speak, that we we talk, the the right prayers, all these different things. But when it comes to actually living for Christ, I'm not talking about being perfect. You're not going to be perfect. The only one that's perfect is Jesus Christ. It's not about being perfect. I'm talking about genuinely living for Jesus Christ, having a relationship with Jesus Christ, submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. There are so many people that claim the name of Jesus but never have never submitted to him as Lord and Savior of their life. So many people, guys. It's not about how much we know. It's not about what we do. It's not about traditions, rules, church attendance. It's not about any of that. It's about a genuine, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. And first and foremost, it's about submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our life. That is the mark of a true Christian. Something else that we can learn from this man, Judas, is something that we see in his nickname, Iscariot. And yes, that was a nickname that wasn't his last name. Iscariot actually meant Dagger Man. And you're probably wondering, what in the world is up with Dagger Man? That sounds like like an evil villain name or something, right? Kind of fits him after, after the fact, but... But what we have to understand is, see, in that day and age, that actually was somewhat of a common name. They they knew what that meant. And Daggerman was a name, a nickname that was given to guys called zealots. And, and Judas is a zealot. He was a zealot. Um, zealots were these kind of hyper-religious, hyper-patriotic type of guys, and they were known to carry around a dagger, thus the name Daggerman. Daggerman. And so you, you would think, well, okay, well, this guy is really religious. He's really patriotic. What's up with that, right? I mean, we probably like him today. He's very patriotic very religious guy well most people would probably like this guy that's a stand-up guy right there but like what's up with that well why is that bad well here's the thing there's something else we have to understand especially in that day and age see the jews had this horrible misconception about the, what the messiah truly who he truly was and what he was truly going to do what he was there to do right and, see they thought the messiah the coming messiah was going to be this warrior conqueror warrior kind of guy that was just going to lead them into battle you know as this just mighty warrior which is all true of jesus it's all true of Jesus. But their misconception was in the fact that they, they had a very small view of the Messiah. Very, very small view of the Messiah. See, Judas, what he's most likely thinking in his mind, he's a zealot, again, hyper-religious, hyper-patriotic guy. So he's thinking, okay, yeah, this is the Messiah. So this guy, he's thinking, okay, looking at all the Roman soldiers and seeing what's going on, the corruption that's going on. He's like, okay, Ju- Jesus is about to rise up. He's about to take power. We're going to overflow, the, over, overcome the, the Romans, conquer the Romans. We're going we're to be the greatest nation ever. And he's like, that's what he's thinking about Jesus, right? That's his mindset, his conception of Jesus. And so he's just waiting. You can imagine Judas waiting for Jesus to rise up and to do these things. Right? He's following Jesus, and he waits time and time and time again. He's keep on, he keeps on waiting. And finally, with all these frustrations building up, he's probably thinking Jesus is dragging his feet. It gets three years. Three years it's been. And Judas most likely most likely would happen in this instance. Judas finally just got, gets fed up. And he's like, all right, you know what? I'm going I'm to put him in a situation where he essentially has to act. He has to do something. Right? And so Judas concocts this plan, and this plan is to lead these soldiers to Jesus and force Jesus into a situation where he essentially has to do something. See, Judas didn't ever really understand who Jesus Christ truly is and what Jesus Christ truly came for. He didn't ever truly understand. But regardless of all that, he never ruined Jesus' plan. He never ruined God's plan. God's plan, his mission always, from the very beginning, was to come to the earth to die on the cross for us. He never ruined the plan. God used him in spite of himself, in spite of what he did. God does not use us. In his sovereignty, God's plan is going to come into fruition regardless of what we do. He doesn't need us. So regardless of what Judas does, Jesus' mission was still the same. It never changed. It was always the cross to die for us. Always. But Judas, and his hyper-patriotism, and his hyper-religion, he completely missed it. He completely missed it. He didn't even understand what it was. What what truly matters, which is a true authentic relationship with Jesus Christ and submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He completely missed it. As we have to understand, it's not about what we think is right. It's not about what we think is good. It's not about, you know, the things that we do. It's not about how talented or skilled or gifted we think we are, you know, as leaders or whatever else. It's not about how much we think we know about the Bible, the right prayers, the traditions. It's not about any of that stuff. It's not even about our, our agendas, our time frames, our schedules. It's not about any of that stuff. The only thing it is about is about Jesus Christ. He is, the, he is our only Lord. He is our only Savior. It is only about Jesus Christ. Submission to Jesus Christ. A relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what it's about. Not only did Judas fake it for three years, but he completely missed the mark altogether. And so do so many other people that claim the name of Christ. Even in churches today, they miss the mark altogether. Together, Let's keep on going in this, John chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, which says, Simon Peter was following Jesus as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest. Uh, and, and this disciple was talking about, this is John. So we went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, this is John, the one, no, um, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Let's skip to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? This is the second time. He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Didn't I see you with him at the garden? Peter denied it again three times. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Guys, it's not always the people that are the loudest. It's not always the people that we think are the most talented, the most gifted. It's not always the people that we think know the most about the word of God or or, or are the biggest leaders, the greatest leaders in the churches. They're not always the ones that are the greatest disciples, the greatest followers of Jesus Christ. They're not always the ones that are greatest followers, guys. And Peter's life displays that for us so well. Peter, this, this essentially, seemingly great man of God, when it came to the cross, Jesus Christ completely abandoned Jesus. He didn't even make it to the cross. He didn't even make it to the cross. Why? Because of fear. Because of fear. And I think honestly that Peter's greatest struggle in these last moments of Jesus's life, I don't think his greatest struggle was the fear of what may happen to him if they found out that he was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. I think that was a big struggle that he had, a big fear that he had, but I don't think that was his biggest struggle. I think Peter's biggest struggle in the last moments of Jesus's life in this moment in time was the fact that he didn't realize how much he needed Jesus to begin with because when we truly understand how much we need Jesus there is no greater fear in life than never having known him at all there is no fear greater there's no no greater fear no greater terror no greater horror in life than to have never known Jesus and to have never followed Jesus that is the greatest fear in this life. And guys, it's easy to follow Jesus when there's nothing that's demanded of us. It's easy to follow Jesus when there's no payment that's involved. But when it comes to the cost of discipleship, when it comes to following Jesus when it actually is hard, when it comes to actually following Jesus when the temptations of the world are just so much that it just is like bearing us down and we feel like we can't do it. We can't keep on going. When it comes to following Jesus, when the, you know, we're trying to listen to his truth, but the world is speaking all of these lies, screaming all of these lies to us. When it comes to following Jesus, regardless of all of that, that is the true mark of a Christian. Somebody that doesn't just simply talk about Jesus Christ, but somebody that lives their life for Jesus Christ. That's the mark of a true Christian. And John, this disciple, this disciple that Jesus loved, the text tells us, He gives us this incredible picture of what a true follower of Christ, one of the most faithful followers of Christ does at the Last Supper, the the Lord's Supper. Let's check this out. This is the last text. It's not going to be up on the screen, but just listen as I read this to us. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 25. It says, When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, this is John, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him, find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back, this is John, against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Now notice in this text, don't miss this. Notice in this text what John is doing and where he is at. This text says he was reclining close beside Jesus reclining close beside Jesus and then the following two texts tell us something else Peter again the seemingly great follower of God this great man of God is asking John to get information you know fr- from Jesus Peter is asking John to get information from Jesus why is that it's not because John is a better man than Peter it's not because you know, he's uh, more gifted or more talented than Peter. It's, it's not because he's a greater leader than Peter. It's simply because John is closer to Jesus than Peter. John is closer to Jesus than Peter. In the end, your relationship and closeness, your nearness to Jesus Christ is what really matters more than anything else. So many of us have made it to the table, so to speak, with Jesus but very few of us are actually leaning into Jesus, very few of us. And, guys, it's only when we lean into Jesus that we can truly follow him regardless of anything, like John, regardless of anything. Through John's life, we see a picture of a man whose, whose greatest desire in life, more than anything else, is to be close, to be near Jesus, more than anything else in life. That is this man's greatest desire, to be close, to be near to Jesus. And guys, when we do the same thing, when our greatest desire in life is to be close, to be near to Jesus, then we, just as John, can find ourselves at the foot of the cross. Only then, when we desire to be close and near to Jesus, can we find ourselves at the foot of the cross. Regardless of anything, at the foot of the cross is where we come face to face with Jesus Christ. God in flesh, the very essence of love on display for all of us to see. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Guys, no matter what's going on in your life, if you've, if you've never been impacted by the gospel, maybe you've heard it several times in your life, but maybe you've never been impacted, you've never responded to it then I want to encourage you, don't wait. Don't wait today. Jesus Christ meets us where we are at. We say that every Sunday morning. I say that every Sunday morning for a reason because that is true. All these misconceptions about how we have to earn God's grace. We can never earn God's grace. There's nothing we can ever do to earn God's grace. Jesus meets us where we are at. He loves us. He will save us where we are at too. So if, if God is stirring in your heart, if you've never, if you've never responded to the gospel message, but you're wanting to do that today, then I would love to pray with you. You want to pray right where you're at if you want to come up to the altar i encourage you to talk with someone though please don't leave here without talking to someone and if you're a christian today and god has been stirring on your heart some things that you've been holding on to maybe you haven't been taking your walk with jesus seriously maybe you haven't maybe you've been at the table with jesus but you haven't actually been leaning into jesus in your life and you've noticed that there's some things that have distanced you those struggles in our life they will distance us from jesus and it's not until those things are removed that we can experience that intimacy that Christ longs for, that he has for us. And that's when the transformation comes into play as well in our life, in the life of the people around us. If you're holding on to things in your life and you're ready to give those things up, give those to Jesus and experience that closeness with him. Lean into him. Then again, I want to encourage you the same thing. Pray where you're at. Come up to the altar. I'd love to talk with you. But please don't leave here today without talking and praying to someone. He loves you. Hey guys! First off, I just want to say thank you for joining us today for the sermon. And uh, whether you're somebody that's come to our church or you're somebody that lives locally, you go to another church. Maybe you don't even live here. Um, I just want I just want to say first and foremost, thank you for joining us. And uh, I, I want to encourage you to to respond in some way today, because you know when we hear a sermon, when we read the Bible, when we um, whatever it may may be, the point of that is. Um, for God to speak to us in some way, shape, or form. And so if you are a Christian, um, and you've been a seasoned Christian, you know the Lord already, then the way that we can respond is just by you know asking Him, God, what do you want me to do with the convictions that you're giving me uh, based on this sermon, the way that you're speaking to me, what do you want me to do? And then respond to that. Maybe it's an area of your life that you've been holding on to um, and, and you haven't been giving it to Him. And I want to encourage you to give that to Him and step out in faith. Or maybe if it's, um, you know, some unbelief that you've had, and, and God has really convicted you of some things. Um, you know, whatever it may be for you, it's different for everyone. I want to encourage you to respond to God and, and step in His direction. And, and the other thing too is, if if you are somebody that maybe you've listened to this and you've never responded to that gospel message, you've never been, been impacted by that gospel message, but now something is happening. God is kind of stirring in your heart and in your mind a little bit. Then I want to encourage you to step out in faith, respond to that gospel message. And throughout the book of Acts. Um Acts tells us our history as a church. Uh, it shows us that you know what that response looks like. So number one is to repent. And this word repent, all that means is just to turn from you know our sinful ways, our sinful desires, you know, turn from making ourself God and all these other things in life, God, and turn to God and just give him our life. Um, and, and then on top of that response, after the repentance, there comes something else it's called baptism and, and baptism is so key it's so important it's seen all throughout um, in that book and Acts and, and the importance and significance of it um, it's the symbol of death to the old self and, and then um, birth to uh, this new life in Christ and we're we're, we're uh, we die with Christ to the old self and we are raised with Christ to, to walk in this new life And it's a command from Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you have made that commitment to Christ, if you have stepped out um, and you are wanting to follow Christ, then I want to encourage you to take that next step and be baptized somewhere. Whether it's if you have a local church that you want to go be baptized at, I encourage you to do that. Um, If you don't have a church, we would love to be able to celebrate that with you um, here. But I encourage you, first and foremost, to do that, to to talk with someone, um, to get counsel on what this means, to seek discipleship as well. So um, I encourage you to do those things. We would love to talk with you. We are praying for you. I want you to know that you are loved and you are prayed for. So if you're ready to take that next step in your relationship with Christ, um, and if you want to take that next step with us, then we, are, we, we would welcome you with open arms. And so there's some links that we're going to provide below for you. Uh, please check that out. Um, and again, if you, if you have any prayer requests, um, please contact us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. And we're excited about taking this next step with you.